Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. The cost of housing is on the rise. What does that mean for home buyers when you factor in the pandemic? This week, we find out. In the late 1930s, the federal government announced the formation of Fannie Mae, an organization meant to ensure the existence of safe and affordable mortgages. The former chief credit officer of Fannie Mae, Ed Pinto, recently told Fortune magazine that home prices will continue to rise in 2022, possibly at a double-digit rate. For home buyers, that's difficult news. Cities like Tucson and the state of Arizona are trying to figure out how to ensure more affordable housing is available. The director of the Arizona Department of Housing, Tom Simplot, started his job less than a year ago. He recently sat down with our producer, Megan Myskowski, to talk about the need for housing right now in Arizona. Can you describe, you know, the scale of the problem? What exactly is, is happening here? Uh, Arizona, like many other areas in the country, we are experiencing uh, an extreme uh, supply and demand issue when it comes to housing. There simply is not enough housing in Arizona. We have fallen behind over the past uh, 15 or 20 years, um, especially since the Great Recession, and have not kept up with the growth of the state. And so we've not kept up with the needs. Obviously, this is a problem almost everywhere. Are there any aspects of it that are unique to Arizona? That's a great question. Unique to Arizona, I guess from the standpoint that we have just had so much growth over especially the past 10 years, uh, I think is unique to Arizona. What More than 750,000 people moved into the state and our housing didn't really increase to meet that population growth. And in your op-ed, you said there's about 250,000 homes that are needed right now. And obviously, no one thing is going to fix that. So what is your overall strategy for tackling that? Well, it definitely has to be multifaceted. So when we look at housing, and if we look at housing on a spectrum, we have housing needs at every part of that spectrum. So if you're looking at entry housing for, uh, for the homeless population, we have great need. We have need for permanent supportive housing. We have needs for, for bridge housing. We have the need for shelter housing. But moving up the spectrum, we also have the need for workforce housing. And those are sons and daughters of families who are getting their first apartment. And we don't have enough housing and, and, the, and the prices are simply through the roof. But as you go along the spectrum, there are also, uh, there's a need for more single family homes. There's, there's simply the need for all types of housing for every socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic level of the spectrum. Reading your op-ed, it seemed like, like maybe there's been issues in the past with getting developers to use these funds. Could you elaborate on that? It's a combination of factors. So if, if we look at how the funds were limited when they were offered a year or so ago, I think we can see in hindsight why they weren't utilized. It was limited to not-for-profit developers and, uh, and the amount was limited. This time around, we have recognized since no one uh, came forward to use that gap financing, which by the way, is essential when, when building affordable housing. The fact that nobody stepped forward 
tells us that it wasn't meeting the need that was out there. So we looked at that and we looked at it from that perspective. And so that's why this time around, uh, it's a much different offering. It's up to $2 million per project. The project must be shovel ready, but the developer can either be a for-profit or not-for-profit developer. And that makes a big difference. And, uh, and I'll tell you, we've already, we already have four different developers at the table today under re-underwriting their projects in order to get these units built quicker. You mentioned in the op-ed that zoning is also sometimes an issue. Could you elaborate a little bit on what kind of what kind of zoning you think needs to be changed? Sure. It's it's not that it needs to be changed. It needs um, yes, it does need to be changed, but it all depends on on the piece of the property itself that is that is going before the, the city or town council. So um, let's say there's a parcel of land that is currently zoned for commercial or retail. Well, if you look at commercial and retail activity right now, we see that we're not building commercial and retail like we used to, especially here in Arizona. We have vacant storefronts everywhere. So a lot of developers are coming in and saying, instead of commercial and retail, they would like to rezone the, that land for apartments. And that is where the pushback from neighbors can come in. Uh, and so without the rezoning, to, to allow apartments and then without the entitlements, which will, which actually dictate exactly how many units can be built and what they look like and where they're gonna be on the parcel of land. Without those approvals from the city and town councils, apartments can't be built. You mentioned neighbors in those areas might not be thrilled about these building projects going up, you know, these, these changes. What would you say to those neighbors? Well, first, uh, I think it's important that we acknowledge change is difficult. And when you're uh, living in a community and all of a sudden somebody wants to take what you know and have lived with and, and change it to something else, that can be scary, right? So there needs to be education. There needs to be transparency. There needs to be communication with the neighbors. But at the end of the day, we need to move past the yes or no to a more consensus building process. So the neighbors, and, and sometimes it works, but the neighbors need to be willing to give a little and the developer needs to be able to give a little. Right now, lately, throughout Arizona, it tends to be either yes or no. And typically, historically, lately, it's been no. No new apartments because we don't want anything. We don't want any change. Well, there's going to have to be a give and take. And I'm not talking about or referring to any particular neighborhood or city or town. It's, it's endemic across the country. People don't want apartments in their neighborhoods. And yet, uh, apartments are the most, the most cost-efficient sort of housing to build in a city. They take less water. They take less streets. They take a less, uh, less infrastructure. There are a lot of cost savings with apartments or condominiums. I'd like to ask you a little bit about rural attainable housing. How could a program like this potentially, or is there, you know, an aspect of this program that could help rural Arizona build more of the housing that it needs? Rural areas are always um, a little more difficult to build in because of labor and, and finding labor in order to build those. And then, of course, the, the cost of materials, again, uh, will always be an issue. When you have more people in a metropolitan area, there's simply more people that you can find for the labor pool. 
So yes, we, we do encounter those issues. As a matter of fact, I was talking to the mayor of Kingman just a week or so ago, and she was telling me that they have uh, practically zero available housing stock in Kingman. They're desperately looking for new apartments, new homes, whatever anybody can build, but there's also a severe labor shortage in Kingman. So uh, Kingman is, is perhaps the perfect example of the political will is there, the neighbors are ready, but the labor force doesn't exist to the point that they need it in order to move forward with, with the number of units, housing units that they need. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for making time. All right. Anytime, Megan. That was Tom Simplot, the director of the Arizona Department of Housing, talking with our Megan Myskowski. When you talk about affordable housing, many people think of manufactured housing. But that's not always the case. To get a clearer picture of manufactured housing, we spoke with Dr. Mark Keir, an assistant professor in the University of Arizona School of Geography and Development. We began our conversation with a definition of manufactured housing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of terms get used. Uh, manufactured home, mobile home, trailer. And so I'll give you the technical de the definition first, uh, which is that a manufactured home is a factory-built home on a permanent chassis uh, that's built after 1976. And 1976 is significant because that's when the Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, instituted basically construction and safety standards for this type of housing, sometimes referred to as the, the HUD code. And a mobile home, uh, this is in regulatory language, is any factory built home that was built before the passage of that HUD code. But this, where this gets murky though, is that the people that actually call this type of housing home and work in this industry tend to use this language interchangeably. And this is significant in Tucson because when I say manufactured housing, I'm thinking of all of this factory built housing. But the reality is 35% of the manufactured housing we have is pre-1976. So what does that mean? If it's pre-1976, That does it basically mean these homes are not up to code, for lack of a better term? Or what, what was the defining change with the HUD law? Yeah, so what uh, the HUD law did for the first time is impose a national standard. One of the things that differentiates manufactured housing from other types of housing is that it's actually coded at the national level. And prior to 1976, there was basically a patchwork quilt of regulations or lack of regulations. And so essentially uh, what we've found is that oftentimes, you know, the ease of entry and exit from a structure, like how big the windows are and things like that is, is different pre and post 76. Oftentimes there's little to no insulation in those pre 76 units. Um, oftentimes they're, they're built with hazardous materials like asbestos or formaldehyde or the wiring is fire-prone um, aluminum wiring. These are dangerous structures in many instances. I mean, they're, some of them have been invested in and improved and uh, rehabilitated. But uh, when, when I think about the manufactured housing that's on the landscape in Tucson and Pima County, that's of greatest concern, there's a big overlap with those 17,000 units approximately that are pre-76. Those 17,000 units, Obviously, there are more than 17,000 homes in Pima County, Tucson. How big a percentage are manufactured homes, be they pre-1976 or the more current ones here in Pima County? So we have about 50,000 units 
of manufactured housing. And that includes those pre-76 units. When I say that, 50,000. And that's about 10% of all housing units in the county. So it's a, it's a substantial slice of the affordable housing mix in Tucson and Pima County. It's, about, it's home to about 100,000 people, so about 10% of the population as well. We have a lot of manufactured housing. For comparison's sake, Metro Phoenix is about 4.9%. If you look at a list of all of what I call like the uh, manufactured housing prevalent metropolitan statistical areas in the United States, Tucson has a lot. We end up ranking about seventh overall in the country. Did anything about manufactured housing and the ability for people to get into it if they want to change with the pandemic? We've seen so many economic changes in the last almost two years. In the desert Southwest in particular, especially for these older homes, we are concerned about manufactured homes that people can't keep cool. For some people, staying home meant being safe from the coronavirus, but exposing themselves to dangerous daytime indoor temperatures. We worked with a person, an 80-year-old man, whose bedroom hit daytime highs of around 105. We, we worked with another household whose average indoor temperature over the two months that we uh, worked with them was higher than the average outdoor temperature. This is one of the many ways in which the pandemic has highlighted and brought to the surface a lot of social inequities um, that we need to be thinking a lot more of. Are those temperatures differences in the houses, the manufactured houses, due mostly to poor insulation and con or different construction materials than other houses? Or are there other economic issues? Maybe they can't afford to run the air conditioner so much at play here. I think it's all of the above. I think it's very hard to separate these things out. You know, for instance, the fact that you might have an older unit with a wiring system that can't support an air conditioning unit that's adequate to actually keep the home cool um, <laughs> means that because of the, the structure, you can't actually put in place the infrastructure you need, the, the HVAC system that you need to keep the place cool. If your place is not very well insulated, then even if you can run the air conditioner, it will be prohibitively expensive for you to use that air conditioner to keep it cool. And what we find is that among people for whom, you know, extreme heat is more than just an inconvenience, um, that there's a whole slate of strategies that people use to cope with um, extreme summer temperatures. And one of those things, and again, there's a connection to the pandemic, is leaving the home. And a lot of those opportunities were very limited and continue to be so in many instances uh, for people, you know, going to the library, going to a restaurant going to the mall, going to a public pool. So there's all kinds of interesting ways in which housing vulnerability, housing insecurity, vulnerability to extreme heat and the pandemic have intersected in some pernicious ways. When it comes to the manufacture of these manufactured homes, technology is jumping all the time. We keep hearing more, more about 3D printing. Is that something that's going to come in eventually to the manufacturer of these homes, possibly help with some of these issues because they can use different materials and drive costs down and speed up? Or is it too early to say? I think it's, it's too early to say in some sense, but it's also already happening. You know, some of the distinctions between the types of housing that are out there are, are getting murkier and murkier. Traditional, oftentimes traditional site-built housing is partially assembled off-site now and then assembled on-site. Some of the big um, manufacturers of, 
of manufactured homes are starting to work with developers. So those units are actually being placed on permanent foundations with basements. And so the distinction between, you know, a manufactured housing community and a traditional subdivision is becoming murky. And I would just say that, you know, I'm, I am hopeful about technology and its, its potential to reduce housing costs, make housing um, that is more resilient to climate change. But there's a lesson in manufactured housing. This is good technology that has still become a nexus of vulnerability, right? So it has to do with the social and the legal context in which that housing is embedded. You can have an excellent technology that when positioned in the wrong legal environment, in the wrong financial environment, in the, with, in the wrong regulatory environment, social environment, will not deliver on its promise. And so I think this is really important that as we pursue new technologies, that we realize that technology is never a silver bullet. We need the right frameworks in which to embed these solutions. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Mark Keir, an assistant professor in the UA School of Geography and Development. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're talking about housing, the rising costs, and what that means for the future. Part of the reason for rising costs in Tucson is a shortage of homes to buy. Jeremy Sharp is the managing director of Rancho Salrita. He says the housing industry may have been surprised by what was going on recently. It feels like right now we're in a bit of a housing crunch. Prices are going up, there, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of inventory and certainly a not, not a lot being built. Is that a, a correct feeling on my part and a lot of other people? It is. There has been, I think, tremendous demand throughout the last 18 months. That, that I think surprised the industry a bit. And I think that combined with some of the supply chain challenges that our industry, as well as other industries have faced, have, has proven challenging in bringing that supply to the market. So with the, the pandemic that we're all working our way through, you said there were some surprises for the industry, especially on inventory in what people are looking for in homes now, has that changed due to the pandemic or during the pandemic? You know, when, when the pandemic hit, I think what we all realized is that home matters and it matters differently. All of a sudden home, what it used to be is just a place we kept our stuff and we kind of lived out of the home for a lot of people, right? Especially people in more urban environments. They lived out of their home. They're going to shows, they're going to dinner, they're going to events in the city. Well, what we realized is that home matters. It was, it became the place where we eat. It became the place where we teach. It became the place where we work and the place where we, where we play. And as we've come out of COVID or as we've come out of that transition to more, a little bit more of normal life, home still matters. And so you're seeing the design of home shifting a bit where you're, you're seeing quote unquote Zoom rooms, you're seeing more space for families to gather, you're seeing a, a bit more focus on that indoor-outdoor space and that outdoor living. And I think you'll continue seeing that. During the pandemic, as people started focusing more on their homes, what were some of the things that it seems like we have all started to look for in our homes? So on one level, I think it's a home. I think it's a home. On the other side, it's a community. And so people were looking for the location of the house they were looking for what amenities were around that house. And then, but within the home, 
you know, really focusing for space. Where can they work at home? Where can they play at home? Where can kids do homework and the parents can work at the same time? But even more so, it's a, it's a livability of a home. And, and when you say livability, and you've talked some about indoor-outdoor, are people going back to looking for yards again? It seemed like for a while yards were getting smaller and smaller. Do you think we'll see bigger yards in the future as a result of this? I think you'll see different types of outdoor space. And for the different demographics, for an older demographic, that might mean a smaller yard, but more in indoor, outdoor living components. So maybe a larger window, larger doors leading out to the outdoors to a fire pit. For a young family, that may mean more turf, um, a small play area opportunity. But what we are seeing, and, and as a developer, what we're, what we're really focused on is how do we build neighborhoods that get people out of their homes as well? And how do we build neighborhoods that continue to evolve and encourage connection between individuals? And you do that by creating really engaging outdoor spaces within people's communities, within people's neighborhoods. When you say engaging outdoor communities, are you talking about that neighborhood park and things like that or other things? Yeah, the neighborhood park, um, different type of, type of amenities such as playgrounds or sport courts, outdoor pools, um, neighborhood pools along those ways. You know, those are what, at least in Southern Arizona, a lot of the, your new home builders, your new home, your new community developers are really focused on is living, creating that livability within a neighborhood. To, so where a home builder can come in and build a home that somebody really desires, and that person can have that livability as part of it. Zoning always comes up when we're talking about building new homes or even converting older homes uh, to be more modern or what people want. Is there anything in particular you want to see changed in the zoning laws that will make not only your job easier, but make what home buyers are looking for easier to find? or maybe speed up construction for that matter? You know, your latter point, I, I, I think is an important one. Um, our zoning laws in Southern Arizona, depending on the municipality, offers a lot of flexibility. Um, different municipalities have different, I would say, feelings about growth. And at, in the development community, we definitely understand that and try to work with them on that. What's really affected our ability to get new homes on the ground and that supply chunk, uh, crunch that you that you alluded to in the beginning of, of our interview is really the time, I would say time and cost. And that's every step of the way. And so that's all the way from our kind of the engineering and the entitlement side, but also working with municipalities. There's tremendous opportunities for our industry to work together in a very productive way with various municipalities around Southern Arizona to say, hey, we all want more houses on the ground. We all want to build more affordable housing. How do we do it? And how can we do it together, recognizing the needs of the industry, but also recognizing the needs of the community? And I think if we can get back to that point and really focus on really focus on working together to bring down the time it takes to get through zoning entitlements, uh, such as platting and so forth, bring down kind of the, those approval processes with the with the different municipalities, as well as if there's opportunities to, to lessen the cost, that's always great, but really it's a time component and, and really get houses on the ground uh, quicker. One of our biggest challenges is that our builders don't have supply. They don't have enough houses on the ground for the amount of demand that they have. Even though they're, they're in the pipeline, 
Um, we have over 1,500 homes in the pipeline right now, locked in the pipeline at various stages. But ultimately, if I'm looking for a house today, I don't have a lot of options, whether in, whether in the communities we build or throughout the region. What do you think is the future of housing development? Are we going to see more of what they call the missing middle, those duplexes and triplexes? Um, are we going to see more high rise or will we continue with at least what I've seen in my lifetime, you know, the single family home? You know, that's a great question. And we've looked a lot at it, you know, depending on the region, you'll see various focuses on different types of housing. Southern Arizona and Arizona in general has always been a traditional single family type of house. In Phoenix, you're seeing much more demand for high density because there's such an influx of, of people and the growth in Phoenix is, is so vast right now. Tucson and Metro, we haven't seen that. And, and so there's still this demand that if you're living in the suburbs to have that single family house, you're seeing a higher density. We're trying to push density. And I know municipalities, many of the municipalities want higher density for more affordability. We're not seeing the demand out there from the home buyers. If they can, they'd still like a larger house and have their, their lot. So in the near term, I think you'll see builders continuously building what, what we've done in the past, uh, maybe in a more efficient way, hopefully. But ultimately, if we can bring in, in specific areas, more density, and zoning and allows that, that would be great. But vastly, it's that single family traditional model that is built Southern Arizona that I think you'll see continuously in the next three to five years. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Of course. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Jeremy Sharp, the director of Rancho Saurita. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Megan Myskowski produced this week's show with help from Samantha Larned, our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.